to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. So, Paul, do you enjoy a glass of wine? How many how many years have you been doing this show, Rick? That's kind of a dumb question. It's what I do. Still, the dumb question stands. Okay, yes. I enjoy a glass of wine. Well, maybe not for long. <laughs> I'll exp- I'm going to explain, I promise. Oh, good. Also, today we have a couple of questions from restaurant people, including one about how they should store opened wine overnight, and another listener asks about wine in kegs in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Our horrible wine writing is another great case of horrible over-wine ri- overwriting. Overwriting. We're actually going back to a, a source of really horrible overwriting, and we have some stuff we love. Oh, boy. And, and as usual, we're making fun of wine snobs. By the way, we are yet still on Capital Public Radio's podcast lineup. Recommended podcast. They are lovely folks there at Sacramento's NPR station. Nice people. And we are also on Napa Broadcasting. And Napa comes out of your Napa Valley College where you teach. That's right. They should know better. They should. They know you, Paul. I mean, (laughs) at least they got an excuse not knowing me. That's right. All right. So, Paul, it's as if climate change isn't bad enough and it's threatening parts of the wine. Well, then it really is. Now we have to worry about basic changes in people. Well, Rick, there are a couple of people that I'd like to see changes in. You know, I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, can't, I can't really argue. <laughs> okay. So what's the problem? But that's, but that's not where we're going today. <laughs> okay. Where are we, we going are actually, here? We're talking about uh, genetic change, actually. Okay. So not a co- bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so we're still on point. <laughs> I'm working on it. Uh, all right. So this is according to researchers at the University of Pennsylvania. Yep. They say that human genes are evolving to make alcohol intolerable for the human body. Hmm. That seems like something that we wouldn't necessarily want to encourage us, is it? I mean, don't wouldn't we want to? Well, if you go back 50,000 years, our bodies changed so that we could consume alcohol, and it allowed us to expand our food sources. That's in the DNA. This is true, but there's actually another another evolutionary force at work, which I'm going to explain in just a second. Okay. So according to this study, in the peer-reviewed journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, one of my regular yeah, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right up with the Tokyo D- Journal of Dentistry and Mouth Pain oh, I, or whatever. I, I love that. It's, yeah, the, the, in the original text. <laughs> in, in the these, original yeah, Japanese, yes, yes. right. Um, it seems more and more that less and less. Okay, let me say that in English. Uh, more people are being more people. More frequently, people are feeling sick uh, from alcohol. Al- alcohol can make more people sick than it used to. This doesn't have to do with getting older, because as you no. get older, you don't metabolize alcohol as effectively as no. you have learned, right? I'm. There's many things that I don't do as effectively, <laughs> and, but uh, yes. Yeah. We're not, we're not going down that road too far. Okay. okay. So, uh, yes, here's the thing. So the scientists say that we have a gene that makes us react badly to alcohol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it evolved as protection j- j- along with the gene that allowed us to, to eat fermented to, fruit. Right. But to keep us from eating too much uh-huh. so that we wouldn't eat too much fermented fruit and kill ourselves. Right. So both of these things were going on at once. But they say that that gene, the one that protected us, is getting stronger in human beings. Huh. So it's making us a little more a little more queasy in all kinds of ways. It makes us feel bad. makes us sort of upset stomachs, all sorts of weird, funny— Is there also a gene about po- participating in podcasts? Well, apparently there's a, a lower and lower tolerance for— <laughs> For bottle talk? Is that what they say? Well, no, I can't possibly. Can't, can't, uh, can't possibly be right. what they are saying. That can't be right. Yes. Um, uh, the, um, so um, how, is this everybody? Is this certain populations? Is it – how does it work? Um, I, I don't know. 
I don't know. Yeah, the rest of it was actually written for people who know something about the topic, so it was, it was way over I, your head. I didn't understand most of the rest of that. <laughs> uh, so, um, I, I, huh. think, I think what we're talking about here, in, in my case, uh, might be incomplete research. Yeah, <laughs> you've got a you've got a gene in you that allows you to uh, part, uh, imbibe or, yes. or partake and, of and, incomplete research. And apparently, research. Uh, apparently, my tolerance for incomplete research is growing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so good, good for me. Good for you. All Excellent. Right. Well, speaking okay. of incomplete research, I think we should answer some questions. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yes, why not? Because why not? All right. And if you'd like to ask us a question and get an incompletely researched answer, <laughs> you can go to Bottle Talk. Uh, excuse me, RickandPaulWine.com. That is their website for Bottle Talk. RickandPaulWine.com. All one word. So this one comes from Michelle. Okay. Uh, she owns a couple of restaurants in Dallas. Okay. Um, I was actually chatting with her not so long ago. Yep. And she said, I'm really trying to understand natural wine. She actually said, I said, ask us a question for the podcast. And she said, well, this is something that she would like to hear us discuss. Good. Okay. So she says, I'm really trying to understand natural wine. What are the techniques? What qualifies as natural and how much difference does it make? Okay. So it's very easy question to answer because there is no definition yeah. of natural wine. So yeah. there we are. Yep. In general, what natural wine implies is minimal uh, interference or minimal intervention by the winemaker. Now, it's funny because I tasted a great bottle of wine years ago with a, a dear friend of mine who's a master of wine and a master sommelier. And it was a fabulous bottle of wine. And we turned to the winemaker and we said, how did you make this? And he laughed and he said, this is a long time ago. We picked the grapes when, we were, when they were ripe. We put them in a in a barrel for a couple of years, and then we bottle it. Yeah. So that's kind of natural. I mean, that yeah. is sort of the essence of natural wine. Now, the definitions get really murky when you start talking about, well, what does that mean? How do you know if the grapes are ripe? Well, do you just taste them? <clears throat> do you do chemical analysis? If you do chemical analysis, is that no longer natural? Right. Uh, you know, so there's, there are variations and gradations uh, on every scale here. But in general, uh, natural wines means minimal winemaker intervention. And, of course, most winemaker intervention is designed to make the wine be more consistent and taste good. So whether or not those interventions are successful, you do give up a certain amount of consistency in production. Most natural wines, even natural winemakers will tell you, have more variation from year to year. And then the ultimate question is, does it taste the way you want it to taste? In a lot of natural wines, uh, the winemaker readily admits this doesn't taste like other wines. It's a little more this way or a little more that way. That's okay. If, you, um, if that's what if you that's want. If that's what you like. Yeah. Sure. So, and this is this is the the complicating matter of uh, natural wine. And this is what Michelle was actually chatting about was that, you know, there's, there is a, a zealotry, as there often is with so many things, wine, for no real reason because just somebody cares more than they ought to. Right. Um, and I so, hate it when you talk that way. Yeah, it's, yeah this, I really care a lot about the way you think. <laughs> no, uh, the, uh, but it is the, this notion that, that, other that if it's not natural, the problem is that there's this feeling that if it's not natural, it's bad. But natural one natural can't be defined, right. and two, as I think a listener asked us, uh, maybe it was just last week, is why do they care? I was, I think I remember she was saying it was about a song. Why do why I she care? care? How, why it, do I care how it was made? If it I only good. care what it tastes like. Right. If it right. tastes good, why not? Right. And, and and to me, part of the problem is the term natural, because if they had said minimal intervention wine. 
Which is not a good marketing term, so clearly. It's but not yes, a good marketing yes, term, yeah. but it would be clearer because the problem with natural is that it then implies that everybody else is, is unnatural. Unnatural. Right. And frankly, I know people who make lots of wine very consistently and they are very rigorous about how they make their wine and it is not inconsistent from year to year. It doesn't vary around the spectrum. It's really good wine. It's really well made. And they make it year after year after year that way. And they don't like the fact that they've spent their whole lives making really good wine and now being told they're doing something unnatural. And one of the things that some of the, including UC Davis and some some great winemakers that I know teach is cleanliness. They teach about making sure that the cellars and the barrels and everything is clean. And there's a wing of the natural movement that says that is actually intervening. Right. So, you know, right. I mean, that's getting to the point. It's it's not you only— You could use it, a little intervention from time to time. That's a whole right? different kind. And it's, <laughs> a little wouldn't even begin to help Paul. <laughs> but the— so, you know, huh. it's one of those things where it's almost like looking for a fight, you right. know. And, right. And, you know, you and I have, have kind of this a guiding guideline, I suppose. It's not a rule, but it's this guidepost, which is— if you want to try something, if you want to do something, if you want to make something, if you like wine that's orange, if you like wine that's whatever, cool. Right. Go for it. Go for it. And maybe do you'll it. like it. Maybe I'll like it. Maybe I won't. Right. Maybe, yep. But but somebody else, some other region, some other thing doesn't make it bad just because it's not your way. Well, and in fact, I mean, I tell my students I like more acidity in my wines than most people do. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to tell you that the wines you like are bad or that they are too low in acid. This is the wine I like. I hope you like something different because if everybody likes the wine I like, the prices go up. I'd rather everybody else hate the wine I like. There you go. See? You also have a lot of acidity in your personality. I mean, (laughs) meaning spin that out, however. I don't think we want want minimalist intervention here. (laughs) Both you and I probably uh, (laughs) – we need need full technology to do it. So, Michelle, I mean, so that's (laughs) – the answer is what difference does it make? Well, really, natural wines are going to probably taste a little different than – you know, because – most of them. Because the things that we are used to that makes wine come out the way we're used to it well, is a little bit off. And here's the other side of that, which is if you make a natural wine and it tastes exactly like all the other wines in the market. Then what's the point? Then what's the point? Yeah. So the people who make natural wine do have a tendency to push the envelope in a couple of directions at least to make sure that their wine tastes right. a little different. Yeah. And then the, and once again, the complicating factor, too, is it's going to be different vintage to vintage. Every right. every time they make wine, it's going to come out different, right. which is, you know, sometimes it makes it exciting and fun. But if you're a restaurateur, it also makes it Tough on yeah. your clientele, so yep. it's a little of all those things. Yep. So it's it's not it's is both simple and complicated subject. All right. So this, this was kind a qu- of like you and me, right? Uh, you're I'm complicated. You're simple. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This was a, a question. Another question that actually that uh, was a discussion question. Uh-huh. Um, this is uh, a, a young guy named Josh. Great guy. Works in Sacramento restaurant. And we were chatting over actually a, a bottle of wine. You know, wine by the glass. And I yep. ordered it. And um, and you could tell it had been opened. Uh-huh. So he asked. He said, "Wanted to know how how you can tell." He's he's a little bit new to wine. Just a little right. Bit. Um, if you, how can you tell the wine's gone bad overnight? What's the best way to store it? And, okay. he, and one of his worries, and it was interesting, he worried that the restaurant got really cold overnight. You know, mm-hmm. they, when they go home, they don't leave the heat on. And he asked if that hurt the wine. So the answer to the last question is probably not. No, yeah, because cold isn't going to be a problem. Right. Cold right. usually doesn't hurt wine as heat much as heat Heat is does. your problem. If right. it gets over 70 or 80, for sure 80. Right. But that's not a good yeah. thing. But, but air is the biggest 
Right. Is the biggest enemy of wine in an open bottle. And and so is, well, yeah. And I would say, well, yes, that, let's start with air because then, because I'm going to have another point, but go ahead. Well, air introdu- introduces oxygen and the same way that a bright, fresh apple starts to turn brown almost the minute you slice it open, wine starts to oxidize the minute it's exposed to air. And if you leave it overnight, it can oxidize to the point where it doesn't taste good the next morning. Now, there are ways to combat that. There are little gases you can pour in the bottle or you can, you know, um, you pour, pour it into a half bottle and top it up and that sort of thing. Or, uh, and the one that I use is, 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 is the little pump. You just put the little right? rubber stopper in your pump like crazy and get your workout too. But... Um, in, in most restaurants, standard policy is when you open a bottle of wine, you write on – if it's a wine by the glass, you just put a little note in the corner of the label when you opened it. Right. But it doesn't answer the question is can you tell? And, and, and the answer I is actually, you can tell by tasting. Yeah. And, and what the taste is, if you, hadn't, if you don't know the wine, for example mm. – is that there's a there's a tang at the back end that shouldn't be. That's the first thing. Hmm. There's you know it's like there's a, an acid that doesn't go with the wine, and it, it, you know that's when the wine is beginning to turn. To me, to me, it's almost more apparent in the nose. But what I would suggest is if you have any questions, open a new bo- fresh right. bottle and compare the two. If you can smell them and tell a difference, yep. the open bottle should get tossed. Uh, the one that's been opened, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, and and the way to store it, another problem often is, and this is um, this is sort of an issue. This is something that that um, we have suggested in the past. If you, you know, if you're buying wine by the glass in a restaurant, right? So one of the things is ask them how long it's been opened, especially right. a red. A white's going to be in the fridge, so you're fine, right? Um, but the red, although if it's been open for nine days in the right. fridge, yeah, you're no, still I'm cooked. thinking overnight, but yes. Right. Um, and the other is look at where the red wines that they are serving by the glass sit. If they're right. like on in a, in the bar in a corner quietly, well, but maybe they're on the back bar under those lights, right. getting nice and warm, and right. sitting there all afternoon. Or, and by it doesn't even have to be all day. Or sitting even by, on top of the little wine fridge where the whites right, are, where or the whatever warm air is. is coming up and yep. heating them up nicely. So, so that's a part of it too. Is is where they're stored. Um, yep. And and the other thing he said. So what what to do, and this is advice that I have in the past given to restaurant friends, and I've done this quote-unquote study a few times, and, and, and my answer is always sort of consistent, is first off, refrigerator is your friend. Right. So bring the, put the wine, in the restaurant, bring them, put the wines, both of them, the white and the, and red, the red, in, in the walk-in yep. overnight. You can take the red out and warm it up a little bit. It's yep. not going to hurt. Right. So the second is that I have found that overnight, and I've, I've done it with like trying it a whole handful of ways without using the gas, is that whites overnight, by just putting the cork back in, seem to stay a little fresher than pumping the air out, hmm. because pumping the air out seems to pump a little something out of the wine. Hmm. The reds, I do have found pumping the air out you know, with a little stopper and then mm-hmm, sticking mm-hmm. it in the refrigerator overnight kept the red the freshest mm-hmm, for the next day. So mm-hmm. that, that's been my experience. Yep. So, you know, Some people use the inert gas and, and right. this other things. They, yep. And then there is the Coravin, which is that way of... You know, basically siphoning a glass out without really pulling out the cork. Right, right. And that's the expensive way yep. to do it. Yep. And and if you see that in a restaurant and they're using a Coravin, you know the wine's going to be fresh if it's been stored in an okay right. place. But to, to Josh's question, the easiest way to tell, open another bottle, smell them. If the the bottle that's been open for a while smells different, toss it. Yep. Um, and, in the, and if it doesn't, you'll, you'll pour through and into the next bottle anyway. So. Yep. Yep. All right. That's it for questions for now. We will have more. Up next is uh, some more really, really horrible wine writing. Excellent. Excellent. 
know. I don't know why that music makes me so happy knowing what's coming. But <laughs> so, so last week we had a couple of descriptions from this group of industry people and critics who run this website, and it's like they have this way too large a pile of adjectives sitting on their desk. Right. Well, they make it paid by the word. It's maybe that's it, and uh, it was, it's just so dazzlingly awful. I, I just had to bring a couple more back. Okay. But what's what's it's much fun is also what it is that, that these. This dazzlingly, dazzlingly massive amount of adjectives describe. Cool. Well, let me, let me give one a shot here. Dusty pink coral color, floral attractive aromas of roses, spring blossom, jasmine, honeysuckle, white flowers, juicy Bartlett pear, red raspberry and clove with a supple, crisp, dry, medium body, and a complex, very long raspberry currant, key lime pie, cherry, watermelon, mandarin, and chervil finish with well-integrated fine fruit tannins and no oak. And the wine is... Well, I'm guessing from the dusty pink coral color that it's a pink wine. It's a rosé. There you go. Okay, so okay. I love rosés. Yeah. That's kind of a lot of words for a rosé. So here's my thought, Rick. We have aromas of roses, spring blossom. Now, what are spring blossoms? I'm thinking flowers like roses that come okay. up in spring. And then you got jasmine, honeysuckle, and white, white flowers. flowers. Wait, wait a minute. Aren't isn't, they white flowers? Isn't jasmine a white flower? Yes, so is honeysuckle. So now, so you got two of the words, spring blossom and white flowers, mean absolutely zero. Oh, oh, but but they add they add to the word count. <laughs> There's another one coming. Yeah, and then you got more. You got I know your favorite. Yeah, red raspberry. Red raspberries. See, raspberries all taste the same. It doesn't matter what color they are. Purple and pink and yellow and yep. green and yeah, all taste the same. They all taste. There's the a same. difference in texture, but it wouldn't be you wouldn't <laughs> yeah. notice that. Yep. And, yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Good. Okay. I yeah yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So and it's rosé and rosés. God bless rosés. I love rosés. Yeah. But they're not the world's most complex wines. Well, if even they the are, good, yeah. yeah. So all right. Okay. What do you have? Dark copper color, complex mm. aromas and flavors of toasted fruitcake, caramelized roasted chestnuts, hints of tamari, chocolate yogurt, chocolate yogurt, blackberry, <laughs> blueberry, cinnamon, and cocoa powder with a supple, crisp, crunchy, effervescent, dry yet fruity medium body, and a smooth layer, long, caramelized citrus, pepper, white pepper, and chocolate raisin gingerbread finish. <laughs> chocolate raisin gingerbread. Yes, that's one. That's one now. Chocolate that's raisin one gingerbread. Name. That's one noun. Yeah. Okay, and the kicker here: this is a mead. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a mead wine. It's a wine that's wine made from honey. Made from those honey. things, and they can be delicious too. But there's not a lot of sophistication. Yeah, you don't in a need mead. to get. Yeah, this is. They well, taste like honey. This is way overkill. And you know this. what else is not in there? Honey. <laughs> mead yeah, wine. A lot made, of caramelized. Though. Yeah. yeah. Well. Tamari. I like chocolate yogurt. Yeah. <laughs> like, where do you get? Oh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm getting chocolate yogurt. <laughs> I like supple, crisp, crunchy, and effervescent. Yeah. Now, Ch I'm sorry, but to me, supple, crisp, and crunchy should not probably all be in the same <laughs> in the same descriptor. Yeah. Crunchy. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. Anyway. Uh, wow. So this, this and is— And pepper and white pepper. Right. So presumably right. the first one is black pepper. They could have got an extra word. They could have said black, black pepper, pepper and, white, and pe white pepper. Yeah, they could have gone with red pepper. And well, Or their editor then might have said, no, it's black and white pepper. They still would have got one more word. Yeah, that's right. Come on, they're yeah. getting paid by this. I don't know. I just think that they have a box they're trying to empty. <laughs> if we keep throwing <laughs> to shake them out onto the computer, right? right. Well, now we've been, oh. we've been, we're being cranky. 
So it's time to change. And be nice. And be nice with some stuff that we love. Okay. I love you so. So, Paul, I know you have an affection for these wines. And actually, another of my restaurant friends was asking about these. So I said, I wasn't going to tell him the answer. I said, listen to the show. Oh, man, you're mean. I thought you were being nice. He tossed me. (laughs) (laughs) Can't blame him. So we're talking about Cote de Rhone. Cote de Rhone. Cote de Rhone comes from the southern part of the Rhone Valley uh, between, say, Burgundy and Marseille. And a blend of a whole bunch of different grapes. They tend to be um, less expensive than the more famous Chateauneuf de Pop. A question that often comes up, why is it that they are less expensive? Because they're less expensive. It's the it's class marketing. of wine, basically. It's marketing. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah. if they if they could get more money for them, they would, but yeah. they don't. And so, so they are often recommended as a, a great buy, and I would agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A blend of uh, and and again, the primary varieties in this part of the world are Grenache, some Syrah, maybe yeah. certainly Mouvedre or Monastrel, as they call it in Spain. Yeah. And but often, sorts, often there's a white in there. But yeah, and, and, all yeah. sorts of other things. But they are they are delicious. They're fun. They're usually ready to drink within a couple of years of release. They're not wines that you would age forever. Uh, there are some really big famous producers in the Rhone who make great versions of this. I'm thinking of Jaboulet, Charpoutier, and uh, Gigal. But just Cote de Rhone. Um, yeah, and the flavor... Not fancy, but, you know, they're to me, they're like a utility infielder in that they may not ever be the MVP, but every team needs a couple of these around because they're just great. They can fill in in so many oh, different and ways. Can, can they run a good sacrifice? <laughs> they, uh, well, and the thing, too, about Cote de Rhone is that they are... They can also be pretty widely different because there's like 22 different grapes that you can oh, yeah. use. So, yeah. But there is a style, as is often the case. And yep. so, and that's all. So, what you kind of get is sort of medium punch of dark fruit, and there's a little earthiness in the back end of it. Which, yep. is, and they're, yep. I, I love them too. And yep. and if they are when they show up on restaurant wine lists, they're kind of one of those really reliable. They are a reliable buy in that. Yeah, they're almost always pretty good, and they're almost a little lesser than some of the other. So, um, yeah, yeah, less expensive, but really tasty. Yep, yep. So that's why yep. we that's why we love that's them. why we love them. All right, couple questions. This is from Andrea in Cupertino. Okay, and she says I'm seeing lots of restaurants with keg wines. Are they any good? Are those just cheaper wines? Uh, they are not just cheaper wines. No, they are not. Uh, wines in kegs these days. It's, I don't want to describe it as a huge trend because it's not a huge trend, but certainly people who are putting wines in kegs these days are people who are making pretty serious wine, and they're seeing this as a much more cost-effective solution, both for the restaurant and the winery, uh, to offer wines by the glass, and they can be really good. Yeah, and remember we were just talking a little bit earlier about you know the the way to keep wines fresh is to keep them away from oxygen. This is the the way to keep wines yep. fresh. So they're, they're completely clean. And, completely. And, you don't you don't have to put any marks in the bottle. You don't have to pump the air out. You don't have to put them in the fridge. They stay fresh to the bottom of the keg. And they are they can be really all over the map in, t- in terms of the, the, the cheap wine, expensive wine. There's some pretty good wines that are in kegs yes. and, some, and, some, yeah. and some pretty inexpensive wines yeah. too. So it yeah. really is dependent on the wine. But f- the one thing that you, you should know – um, Andrea, is that if you see a keg wine by the glass, you can be pretty sure that it's going to it's going to be con- as it should be. Good condition. Yep. And and the good news is, you know, if if they're pouring a wine by the glass from a bottle, and you say, "Could I have a little taste?" Well, 
they need to get five glasses out of that bottle. So right. pouring you a taste kind of throws their math off a little bit. With a keg, they're not going to sweat it. Always so going to be happy to give you a taste. If you yeah. have a worry, say, could I just try a tiny little taste of that? They'll be happy to give you a little taste, and then you can decide whether it's a good wine or not. And frankly, they like it when you order by the keg. Uh, I mean, a keg wine glass, excuse me, because it's just simply easier for them. Yep. Run back there, pour it. Yep. Run back. So, yep. All right. Good. And, okay, oh, what else you got, Rick? We got, we got one from Alberto in Nevada City. Cool. In Nevada City, if, uh, if for folks who are not from Northern California, is in the in the California foothills, not so far from lovely Sacramento. About wine an hour. country, though. It is wine country. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, and so he says, how much difference does the vintage make? Is there a price point where it matters more? And does it affect little wineries more? Well, the answer to the third one Paul was already talking about it earlier. Can. When it can the, affect. Smaller wineries have fewer grape sources. Right. So, so it, it can have more of an impact. But in general— Vintage matters more in cold regions mm -hmm. where the grapes sometimes don't get ripe. In the New World, particularly in California, uh, we tend to plant grapes where they will get ripe every year. In that case, vintage variation isn't as big a deal. Uh, in some parts of Europe where they're really sort of pushing the envelope about how, how, how warm will it get to ripen these grapes, uh, they're in these cold regions. They need all the sunlight they can get. If they get a if they get a cold summer, it can have more of an impact there. But even so, um, most people these days are you know one of the things that wineries can do is if your grapes aren't getting ripe, you cut off some of your grapes, called a green harvest, and that allows the vine to ripen the other grapes more quickly and more fully. And a lot of people are doing a lot more of that sort of thing in the vineyard than they did 50 years ago. So in general. Vintage variation doesn't matter as much as it used to. In general, it's more of a deal in Europe than it is in America. Um, also, because they can have ice storms in the middle yeah, of the yeah. summer. Where and we in general, less it of that. may affect smaller producers more than big producers. But overall, I wouldn't worry too much about vintage variation unless you're really buying a very specific bottle of wine that you had once and you want exactly that flavor again. And though, and, and Alberto hit on something else too, which is down in sort of the medium to the lower end of the price range. These are often wines, especially if it's if they make a lot of it. These are wines that are made. You know, they they can they have a lot of sources. They sort of make it to a um, whether it's a taste profile or a yep. style profile. Yep. Yep. And so they, you know, it's not going to be too much different year to year. Right. Um, the only time right. you pay attention to the vintages is, is if it's the wine's starting to get old. If it's a white wine, you want more than a couple years old. That, or or yeah. the other reason you pay attention to a vintage is it was the year you got married or the year that your daughter was born and you're buying it specifically because of the year, not necessarily because of what it tastes like. Or the year our podcast started. Yes. Everybody should buy that Yeah, bottle. you should That's, buy that bottle. That would be 2014. Yeah. And I say go it. out and get – it was good vintage, by the well, way. I would I'd buy those up. I'd yeah, snap those you know, it's gonna up. have It's going to have sentiment it's around. It's going to be collector's items. Yep. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just like us. Okay. Well, that's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Yes, it is. Our producer is Matt Bassini. Thank you, Matt. Our associate producer is Jeremy Marin. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use and for including us in their podcast lineup. Their recommended podcast Absolutely. lineup. And if you want to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word. If you learned anything today, we hope, hope it's that humans have not yet developed a gene that makes them resistant to this show. Tragically, so true. Yeah, it is tragic. I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Especially us.